Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. Today, we are going to be reading two stories by Italo Calvino, two stories that were published originally in 1969. These stories are The Castle and The Ingrate and His Punishment. I really love Italo Calvino, so I'm excited for us to be able to sit down and and go through these stories and talk about them today. And what's great about that, too, is that these stories were nominated by one of our Patreon supporters. And so I have to say, Thank you for giving Glenn and I the opportunity to revisit, uh, I don't know, one of my favorite authors that I rarely get to anymore. Yes, I'm so, so grateful that one of our Patreon supporters used a nomination to put Italo Calvino on the ballot as well. I mean, I'm always glad when, uh, whenever somebody nudges us in the direction of magical realism uh, <laughs> here on the show, it's fun to do that every once in a while, get a, get out of our normal comfort zone a little bit. But also, like you, Brandon, I'm a big fan of Italo Calvino. Uh, way back when I was in the army, I went on kind of a, a two-month Italo Calvino bender. And in fact, for this episode today, I got to to actually crack open a book that I had purchased back in the, in those army days, which was uh, a lot of fun. I was glad I bought the trade paperback that has stood the test of time. Uh, super fun to do. And I, I should say on the note of uh, editions as well, that of course, Italo Calvino is an Italian. He writes in Italian. And so we are reading an English language translation of these stories. And this is a translation that was done by William Weaver and published by Harvest Books. I should also say that although so we're talking about these as two short stories. Really, what's happening here is that these are two chapters of a short novel. That novel is called The Castle of Crossed Destinies. Uh, you know, the whole thing is really a, a short story cycle. So we're doing the first story and then the, the framing account here. That's right. The framing account is what's going to get us into the, into the uh, cycle of stories. So yeah, framing story and then one short story. This these two selections from the text were so much fun to read. And I think Calvino's asking or raising a lot of questions about how stories function and uh, all of that stuff is going to get us to the discussion, but we really need to get through the recap first. I don't have a good pitch for these stories. You should just read them. I think um, but <laughs> let's get into the recap. In the midst of a thick forest, there was a castle that gave shelter to all travelers overtaken by night on their journey. Lords and ladies, royalty and their retinue, humble wayfarers. That is the opening line of The Castle of Crossed Destinies. And from this point, we go on to learn that we're going to have a narrator here, that this is, in fact, a first-person account. And our narrator crosses a rattling drawbridge into a courtyard where silent grooms take his horse. And he says that At this point, he was barely able to stand that he had faced so many trials, encounters, apparitions, and duels that he could barely think straight and didn't even have the strength to to stand at this point. And at least in in what we're covering today, we're not going to learn anything about those encounters, though I will say that there is an entire novel, I think, packed into that one (laughs) sentence, a novel that I would just love love to read. But at any rate, the the narrator now climbs up some stairs to a high, spacious hall that is full of many other guests who had preceded the narrator along the path through the woods. And this hall, uh, this castle, is sumptuous, it's clearly wealthy, and it's a real contrast to what the narrator expected to find here in the middle of nowhere. 
At the same time, the castle does have the air of being a place here in the middle of nowhere. It has the air of a place where people will only know each other for one night, and so therefore, some of the social rules are relaxed a little bit. And the narrator summarizes this by saying that he couldn't tell if this castle was indeed a noble estate with the lord and lady having descended to the role of innkeepers, or if this place is simply an inn attached to a castle, as one often finds in remote areas, uh, but an inn that has grown in purpose and also in traffic, and now at this point has actually taken over the castle itself. And... At this point, we are only two pages in. We're only halfway through the, the frame, actually, that this opening provides. But before we get to the supernatural and weird element, I, I want to stop here, Brandon, just to admire and appreciate the really evocative world building that Calvino does, right? This this place and, and even the forest that we're never actually in at all, this all feels supremely real to me. It really does. Uh, not long ago, I sat down and watched The Green Knight. Uh, it's a David Lowry film based on the 14th century poem. And it has the exact same kind of feel to it. The film does as as Calvino's opening to this book. There's this overarching sense of courtesy that dominates our narrator's attitudes and behaviors he carries an assumption of this deeply shared understanding of what the world is. Even the strange things are, are shared in the world. He understands the rules that govern the world. And all of this works as a hallmark of courtly or chivalric romance. And you can find that, including strange metaphysical stuff in, in The Green Knight. At the same time, though, in this book, the narrator gives us the sense that absolutely anything can happen via this, what you mentioned, Glenn, these unnarrated adventures of our narrator. And then we also get the sense that the narrator can't quite make sense of the setting. Uh, the narrator says regarding his attempts to interpret the setting that he's found himself in, that there are, quote, two contradictory impressions that could nevertheless refer to a single object. And of course, this this sentiment here, this idea is the setup for the story we're about to get. So this opening is really masterful in giving us a strong, grounded, detail-oriented setting while giving us this subjective framework from the point of view of his characters. And this is really Calvino's strengths as a writer is presenting these uh, different concepts through the lens of subjectivity. And I, I just think this opening is brilliant. Right. I mean, the, the, the gimmick here is that you know, we're going to take a, an ob objective kind of material fact of, of something here and ask how this situation has come to be, come up with two plausible explanations, and then just subjectively choose one that you like better. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a metaphor for how the rest of this book is going to go. And it's absolutely brilliant to give us that in just this stray observation that is also just gorgeously written. I'm so glad you brought up the the Green Knight. I mean, I don't know the film that you're talking about, but you know, I do know late medieval and early modern <laughs> literature and 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 that's really what Calvino is drawing on here. You know, so if you have any experience with any kind of fairy story or fairy tale uh, and and I suppose we all do, you know, if you've got any kind of experience with that, even filtered through Disney, then you've immediately got a sense of the type of world that Calvino is 
is building here. And maybe, you know, Disney's not the best way to, to go about getting that. But still, I think that would that would do the job. And I, I just love the way that he's able to evoke that world and and also I think just write this story in a manner that you know does not make me feel like this could be something that was written in the 15th century. That I will say. But it does make me feel like this could be a translation of, say, Charles Perrault or the Grimm Brothers or Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, it's not, but it, it feels like it could be. We'll be taking a look at that in our discussion. So don't don't you worry, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I will I will get us back on track here so we can go have that conversation. Well, as the narrator gets situated and oriented here, uh, the host directs him to take the one remaining seat at the dining table. But the the host does this all without speaking, and then the narrator notices that, hey, no one else is speaking either. Now, naturally, he thinks that this is just weariness, right? Everybody's been traveling. And so he goes to break the silence with some kind of toast, only to find that he can't speak. And it turns out that no one else can either. And the narrator says, it was clear that crossing the forest had caused each of us the power of speech. Now, We've been talking already about drawing conclusions from, you know, some kind of of, of fact. Uh, I will say that this is probably not the conclusion that I would draw in this situation. Uh, I would think that the castle is enchanted, so that also might be worth taking up in the discussion in some way. But at any rate, after dinner, when the dishes have all been cleared away, the host plops down a deck of cards on the table. And these are quite large tarot cards, uh, which of course can be used for telling fortunes, but also have just been used as plain cards with uh, standard rules that everyone knows. But no one at the table really wants to play one of those games right now. And so instead, one of the guests takes the cards, but he doesn't shuffle them. Instead, he picks out a card with an image that looks like him, in fact, and he places it on the table facing everyone else. And the narrator says that he understood, and and so did everyone else, that this man is going to use the card to tell a story, and that this card, because the person on it resembles him, that this card then simply means I. And so, yeah, that's what this book is. It's a, a story cycle with this fantastical frame here. This book is travelers at an inn where they can't speak, and so they use tarot cards to tell their stories. And what we're going to get next, then, is the first of these tales. That will be the tale of the ingrate and his punishment. And I just have to say that this is, it's just such a cool device. It's just a cool variation on a classic storytelling device. It's a kind of literary experiment that Calvino is getting up to here, though he's such a good writer that you don't feel the experimental nature of the storytelling at this, uh, I don't know, kind of level where you're going to bounce off the text, or at least I didn't bounce off. It's just, I don't know, it's super cool and exciting, especially for someone who was an English and philosophy major like me. Uh, and, and I think it's really important that Calvino has grounded this experiment in the details of the story that invite us as readers into the text. And I, and I really think that this is a great strategy and a, an approach to experimental storytelling, because what Calvino is doing is saying, I still want you to enjoy the story, but I'm doing something a little unique with it. And, and one of the tricks that Calvino pulls here is to substitute the eye of the narrator we've been with so far with the we of the whole audience. So the voice of the narrator doesn't change. It's still clearly a first person um, narrator who is now 
taking on the authority and their and and shifting their interpretation, their authority to interpret, their subjective perspective to the authority of the whole room. And so Calvino is going from I to we in just this brief moment of text. And it's a really smart maneuver that I think cues us into that experimental mode that I talked about in which Calvino is approaching storytelling, in which there is a multitude of of subjective interpretations of what we're about to get, but there's still the need for an authority to interpret. And And I really love what Calvino's up to here. Yeah. One of the things that I guess we should point out just about the material logistics of what's happening here is that we have this first person narrator. We've you know, followed him as he's entered the, the courtyard of this castle and handed his horse over to the hostlers and taken his you know place at the dining room table in this inn. We have that character. We're going to stay with that character here as he's at the table while other people are using these cards to silently tell stories. And so the story that we're about to to do, the, the tale of the ingrate and his punishment, has its own narrator. But we are not getting the story from that narrator's perspective. We're actually getting this story told to us from the perspective of someone who's in the audience of that story, which is just a crazy, crazy move to make and, and then leads to all this subjectivity because we aren't actually getting the story told with any words, of course. And so... Uh, this is actually kind of a daunting task for me as the person doing the recap here. And I, 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 I had some anxiety about it. And I, I'm not sure if my approach is the best approach, but it's uh, it's the one I have taken, which is that I am just going to tell the story the way that the narrator is understanding it, even though actually a lot of what Calvino writes is the drama of the storyteller putting down the cards and, exp- and then also explaining, I mean, from Calvino's perspective, explaining what the cards are, like describing what the cards are, uh, even in the edition that we have actually showing us what the cards look like, which necessarily, of course, is inviting us, the readers, to think about alternative uh, interpretations. But I'm going to leave all of that description of the cards and so on for Brandon to explicate, uh, you know, as he deems important. And uh, of course, then I'm sure that we will take up this issue of subjectivity <laughs> in the discussion. It won't be uh, too much. I'll keep it very light because I think your approach is, is the right approach here. And I think the... Uh, the nature of what we're looking to get into in the discussion is going to to naturally lend itself to understanding the story. As we said at the top of the show, you should just read Calvino if you haven't, and then you'll get a better sense of what he's doing than we could probably describe over microphones anyway. Right. And, th- and there is some other layer of confusion or another layer of confusion at any rate that I'm going to try to circumvent here. So I am also going to continue to use the word narrator to refer to the person who has written all of this down for us, the, the person who whose perspective we are in in the frame story. But then I'm going to use the term storyteller to refer to the person who is laying out the cards. Now, there are no names in this book, at least you know not at this point in what we're covering today. And so that has made this all a bit challenging. But then those are the terms I'm going to use, narrator and storyteller. So (laughs) to get into it here, as the storyteller lays down the first three cards, the story develops. The storyteller is a young knight whose father has recently died and therefore has left the young knight with something of a fortune. Being young and suddenly wealthy, he took some of that liquid wealth with him in search of a a court where he could make a name for himself and also where he could find a suitable wife. 
But another card indicates that while traveling through this forest, he was waylaid by a brigand and robbed and hung upside down from a tree. So this is a bit of a shock, but then we get some more cards now that uh, tell the narrator that the storyteller heard footsteps approaching. These footsteps belong to a young woman. Uh, maybe she's the daughter of a woodsman or a goat herd. She gets the storyteller down from the tree, and she leads him to a spring to drink some water. Now, of course, we've all heard this story before, and we, and, and also this audience at the castle, I should say, we expect that this is going to be a love story. But the next card indicates that the storyteller left. And here actually is what the narrator writes. Having plucked the flower in the meadow and dropped it there, the ungrateful knight did not even look back to bid her farewell. It's really hard for me to have comments on this story that don't like totally give away the game or launch it to some, I don't know, homily of what I want to get to in the discussion. <laughs> uh, you know, so the, this tale is really brief, so I, I am going to hold off commenting on a lot of the, the stuff going on here. But I really want to emphasize here how it is that the narrator is making these interpretations. Basically, what the narrator is doing is taking probability shots at what the cards mean, these tarot cards. And these probabilities or guesses at meaning are based on the expressions of the card turner, like the emotions on the card turner's face, the storyteller's face, as they pick a card and lay it down. The narrator is also looking at how the general audience is responding. Uh, so if there's a moment where there is something like a general relief that the audience feels, say after the storyteller is rescued by the girl after being strung up by the bandit, you know, the narrator can make a guess at what is the cause of that relief when they see a card that has alleviated the tension produced by a previous card or event in the ingrate story. Also in this section of the story, and this is important to point out because it's where our title comes from, we see what makes the storyteller uh, an ingrate or ungrateful. He is rescued after being waylaid, and the frame narrator in this moment of the story gives us reason to be concerned um, that the mystical nature of the world is what is going to be responsible in trapping the storyteller rather than their own ungratefulness. We get this sense of a magic fountain, this, this bit about a magic fountain that creates rather than slakes thirst. But in any event, the Storyteller is waylaid, he's rescued, and then he takes advantage of this woman who rescued him and he moves on. Even though he's, you know, taken wealth from his father, he always wants something better. So we've officially met the ingrate at this point. We know he's at this castle telling this story. And so we have to discover what his punishment might be. Right. And at this point, the storyteller starts a new row of cards. Uh, presumably, this is something he's doing to indicate the passage of, of time. And so the story continues now with him having found a suitable wife. And the setting for this next part of the story is the wedding banquet in a castle. The banquet is interrupted by the appearance near the castle of a, a child running amok. The storyteller goes out to investigate and finds uh, another knight out there, uh, mounted and armored and armed. And when the knight's face is revealed, it turns out to be 
the young woman who had rescued our storyteller from the tree in the forest. Obviously, right, the child is the storyteller's son, and the woman wants justice for having been abandoned in this way. The the two of them fight, the, the woman and the storyteller. They fight, and the woman wins, and she leaves the storyteller wounded on the ground. And when the storyteller comes to his senses, he sees a mysterious matron, and she says, Know then that, in the person of that maiden, you have offended Kibbele, the goddess to whom this forest is sacred. Now you have fallen into our hands. Now the forest shall have you. The forest is self-loss, mingling. To join us, you must lose yourself, tear away your attributes, dismember yourself, be transformed into the undistinguished, join the swarm of Mynads who run screaming in the woods. And then the storyteller lays down a final card and mouths the shout, No, to indicate that the story ends with the sharp blades of Kibbele's followers falling upon him and tearing him to pieces. But, of course... This ending, as the narrator is putting it together, this ending can't literally be true because the storyteller is here telling the story. That is, unless something else is going on with this forest and this castle. Yeah, it certainly feels that way, right? This description of the forest as self-loss mingling is it's uh, a kind of curious I don't know, sentence construction to begin with, but also uh, maybe is uh, conflating metaphorical and literal realities. There are at least some metaphysical realities hinted at in this tale. The mysterious fountains, the strange silence in the castle, the use of tarot cards themselves in the telling of stories hints at alternate and perhaps spiritual realities. So, I mean, I wonder at what level we can even consider truth <laughs> to be a part of this story, <laughs> you know, and 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 the, the, this is the setup for the stories in this collection we're going to get. And that's what we'll investigate as we get deeper into our discussion. I mean, for a hermeneutics, for a hermeneutics nerd like me, this, this story is a real kind of uh, dream. But before our discussion, I want to encourage our listeners here to check out Glenn and Brent's Neil Gaiman podcast, Hanging Out with the Dream King. They're going through Sandman right now. They've covered some other Gaiman short stories. It's awesome, especially as the new Sandman show is kind of looming on the cultural horizon. And of course, Italo Calvino is a big influence on on Gaiman. I mean, I think maybe less of an influence than Borges, right? But Neil Gaiman is uh, you know, really one of the rock stars of magical realism, right? And so is really uh, in the in the vein of Italo Calvino and other people who do this type of storytelling. So uh, if you do like Italo Calvino, I, I would recommend definitely coming over to hanging out with the Dream King and listening to me and Brent uh, go through Gaiman's uh, entire corpus as we can. Right now, we are largely covering the Sandman, but for every volume of the Sandman, we we take a big break in between and cover some short fiction by Gaiman and also look at influences. We actually have not yet looked at either Borges or Calvino, though we have done some other cool stuff. We've looked at Kipling. We've actually done quite a bit of uh, of other comics work as well. Uh, We just have a lot of fun over there. So if you're into this kind of storytelling, I hope you'll come check that out. Uh, And of course, there is a link in the show notes to make that easy for you. But all right, Brandon, I'm super, super eager to talk about this story. So get us into the discussion here. Yeah, what I really want to get into is how this story interrogates basic concepts about how we read and how stories work. But we can't do that yet. Before we do that, we should 
consider how this story in particular works and how we read it uh, so that we can kind of move into the more crunchy topics about interpretation and storytelling. So let's talk about the worlds that this story takes place in. And I guess what I mean is the when of this story. Glenn, when do you think this story takes place? And do you think it matters that we have a sense of the when of this story? I think it matters a little bit that we have a sense of the when. And I guess by that, I mean that, you know, going back to a comment I made earlier about the the tradition of, of fairy tales and fairy stories, it's it's clear that we are in that tradition. And the world that we conjure up in our imaginations, the, the world that those stories, I don't know, not the, the, not the world that those stories inhabit, but the world that is really the currency of those types of stories is this nebulous period that we often call early modernity, which is uh, kind of a fancy way of saying uh, this period that bridges the late Middle Ages and then the early part of the modern era. And so more or less from about 1300 up to about 1750, which is, you know, a long freaking time, right? That's a huge, <laughs> a huge amount of time. We could probably try to narrow this down a little bit here. In fact, there are definitely some specific ways that we could do that. But really, this is inhabiting a kind of unspecified period there. But but really, the story is taking place in an unspecified part of that 400-year period there. Like, this is the same unspecified time that every you know Disney movie ever has taken place in and you know, the fairy tales of Perot and uh, also the Grimm brothers and so on all kind of take place in that this this same kind of numinous uh, numinous time. Right. And, th- and that's because one of the popular culture concepts that we have about this time period is that the world was enchanted and not maybe the world itself enchanted, but people's beliefs in the world had this tinge of enchantment to them. And we get that through grail myths and, and the fairy tales that you pointed out. Um, you know, I, I brought up ch- chivalric and courtly romance as the genres that uh, influence this type of story. Um, you're thinking of fairy tales. And I think they all kind of work together. I think Calvino is conjuring for us as readers in order to put us at ease with the types of stories he's going to tell this sense of the world as being enchanted. And so that leads me into another question, which is, Gwen, what do you make of the narrator suggesting to us that there are some supernatural elements to the world, the the magic fountains, the witches' cults, the cult of Kibbola, the spell of silence? Are we meant to take these things in the spirit of magical realism? Or do you think that Calvino is leaning on this other tradition of storytelling from this early modern or, you know, Middle Ages period. Right. Yeah. Let me finish answering the first question that you asked (laughs) first. I mean, I know I said I was sort of done with that, but I I do want to clarify just a little bit, just to say that although I gave us this kind of four century period that, you know, perhaps we're in, it's clear that uh, to the extent that we are in any historically grounded period, we're in the earlier part of that. So we've got to be post the printing press because that's how we've got the the tarot cards. But nonetheless, this is still a society in which uh, the audience here, or at least the narrator, thinks that one could expect to find someone riding around the countryside in in plate mail. And so that's going to probably put us here in the 1500s. That's going to be my guess, you know, that we're Italy sometime in the 1500s. But I think that that is only 
even important to the extent that we want to think that this story is taking place in the real world. Because I, I don't think that that is true at all. I think that we are really situated here in a secondary world, the world that exist this kind of shared fantasy world that all of the the writers and collectors of of fairy stories and fairy tales and and maybe just more broadly folk tales as well uh, and and you know fairy story is a type of of chivalric romance i should clarify about that as well so we could even just broaden it out to say chivalric romance and folk tales there's this kind of shared universe there like you know the mcu or something like that <laughs> or, or you know the cthulhu mythos for example right that calvino is really situating this story in. that that's my feeling yeah i think that's right and and there's this sense of sharedness, I think that goes beyond just the traditions that Calvino is drawing on, but also in the way that, especially in courtly romances or chivalric romances, we see the characters um, in those stories all share an understanding of what the world is. I mean, the chivalric romances get their name from the codes of chivalry, which were the common rules, at least in particular to those stories of how the world worked, how people interacted with each other. Courtly refers to the court, the rules that govern the court. And so there's this real sense of rules governing not just people's public interactions with one another, um, but also the beliefs in the way the world worked. And and I think that that is crucial to even how the narrator is able to interpret any of the stories, any of the cards, because of this assumption in the metaphysical reality of, of the world. I'm even just glancing at the table of contents for what are the other stories that we're going to get in this story <laughs> cycle. It's clear from some of them that the, that they're they're going to have even more uh, numinous or mystical or supernatural elements. I mean, the word vampire appears in the title of one of them. Uh, there's nothing that indicates clearly, you know, definitively that one of them is going to involve a fairy. And I don't remember if one does, but I would be surprised if one doesn't. But ultimately, I think what happens here where we know that we are not not really in 16th century Italy, but are in some fantasy world that resembles 16th century Italy. This is that there is this belief in these supernatural creatures, and not even just belief in them, but an expectation that they populate the the world here. And then also that there doesn't actually seem to be Christianity, right, in this in this world. That although this is you know, early modernity, and that's clear from you know so many other context clues. Uh, there is not Christianity, but there is a cult of of Kibli, of this uh, uh, Anatolian or also Roman goddess who's uh, you know been worshipped in Italy since the the third century BC. Uh, her cult is alive and well, at least in these woods, right? Uh, but no mention of Christianity in this story at, at all, right? So this is clearly some kind of secondary world. It's a fantasy world, not the not the real world. And I really, really love the way that Calvino doesn't spell that out. It's just kind of subtly here. We just are we're just asked, maybe not even directly asked. We're invited, I guess, to buy into the premise of this world in a kind of passive way. And it feels good. It feels good to get into this world. Yeah, invited is the perfect word because what Calvino is doing is inviting us into a common 
ground that from which we as readers can interpret the text. And we'll, we'll get into some of the hermeneutic stuff in a minute. I have one more question I kind of want to ask uh, before we get into that, that deeper stuff. I, and I really want to ask you what you make, Glenn, of Calvino's choice to create the situation in which the stories are being told in this way. You know, in other words, why is Calvino telling the story or giving us this story cycle? I'll say one thing. He does give away the game, I think, in the afterward to this edition, but I don't quite trust what he says. He says that this book grew out of a kind of personal obsession of his in trying to get the tarot deck to tell stories. So he'd sit down and like choose randomly and see what story was there and then do also and just engage with that experiment. But then also he would try to write stories that would make a nice sequence in the tarot deck and that didn't work. So he he just was obsessed with this project of messing around with the tarot deck and seeing what kind of stories could come out of it until eventually he realized he really had to choose the cards and kind of collaborate both with the, you know his imagination and the images of the cards and kind of have everything work going in both directions. But even from this first story, I feel like there's more on Calvino's mind than just a kind of personal experiment. And I wonder if you really got that sense. That's my question. Well, I share your sense of incredulity there, Brandon. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I buy that story either. But I mean, this the whole frame here, the whole, or really the whole gimmick or, or MacGuffin here is super fun, right? This idea that you're just going to draw the cards and let them tell a story or, or, you know, use them as a kind of story prompt. I mean, there are like actual games that you can, you can buy that are exactly this for, you know, all sorts of age levels and so on. It's a great way actually to introduce kids to the idea of, of storytelling. So certainly I can see where that in itself is a kind of fun thing that Calvino may have, you know, set as a challenge for himself, right? A, a way of, of, telling a story, creating his own, you know, writing prompts, which is always a super fun thing to to do. But I will say that I think these stories do feel very artful. They they do actually feel like really actually what they feel like to me is that in fact there is no such deck of cards. I, I certainly have never seen cards with these images on them before. So I just have the sense that Calvino made the whole thing up, right? Even the images that are on the cards. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if he did that, though he may have a little bit. I think he did find a very specific uh, deck f- to use to kind of limit his his storytelling. He he said he wanted to write a third volume um, in this collection that was way more contemporary to the time of his writing this story, where it was a bunch of people after some catastrophe meeting in some motel and they all lost their voice. And the only way they could tell the story of how they got there is by pointing at uh, panels of comic strips in the newspaper. <laughs> um, so he does have this this thing on his mind, which at least... Uh, is revealed in the afterword of this collection, which is about the conditions under which maybe not only interpretation of stories, but storytelling itself is possible. And so I wonder if just from these two stories, Glenn, and this is kind of a, a, a you know, this is going to lead us down the path into hermeneutics, which is, you know, the art of interpretation. I want to think about not how Calvino thinks we can even interpret stories, but why do you think Calvino is limiting 
for the sake of this collection, our sense of how storytelling is even possible. I mentioned you the uh, you mentioned these kids games uh, and also you know the adult versions of them where you know you get cards and you have to put a story together. Over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, we've been talking about Peace, um, which is. Uh, which heavily uses either tarot, but thematic apperception tests in the concepts involved in, in storytelling and launching us into stories. This is maybe an idea that's culturally floating around at the time, not only pieces written, but this collection as well, where these authors are questioning even the basis upon which we tell stories and what we need to tell a story. I'm not going to strike at the heart of postmodernism here, though I could. Um, I just wonder what your sense is in Calvino's attempt to limit the conditions under which storytelling is even possible. Well, Calvino is someone who's very interested in language and linguistics uh, from both a, a you know a cultural or humanistic standpoint, but also from a scientific standpoint. And so you can see here that right, one of the thought experiments is you know how how do we communicate when language is taken from us and so we do have the gimmick of speech is taken from them which is i think a gimmick i always love i mean hush the buffy the vampire slayer episode right. hush is probably my favorite <laughs> installment in this type of uh, of gimmick or favorite example of this type of gimmick but it's a gimmick that i always love but of course you can get around this by writing right that's what writing is for but that's just not even well, literally on the table here, right? That that although it's not taken out of the realm of possibility the way that speech actually is, Calvino just has the intervention here of the the innkeeper, the the host, putting the cards on the table as if, you know, this is all by design, right? That the innkeeper is is actually the one who's establishing the rules here for storytelling. But just to, to zoom back out to Calvino's perspective, I think that this is an exercise in thinking about how we communicate with each other when language, whether that's speech or writing, is is taken from us. How how can we still communicate our ideas to people? How can we make ourselves understood? Which is certainly a real, you know, deep impulse that we all have. Some of the things that Calvino points out in this story and how storytelling is possible or what storytelling relies on is shared cultural assumptions and values. And that's something I think at this point in the in the 1960s, you know, post-World War II, that these writers are looking at the breakdown of institutions and culture in these this war of both mass slaughter of soldiers, but also civilians, uh, holocausts, genocides, and saying, what do we even share that allows us to tell stories. And in some ways, this this approach is very quaint, right? It's going back to this time, this feeling, I should even say, of this time period that we have in, in, in fairy tales and chivalric romances, where it, it feels like Glenn, even as you point out, there's no Christianity in this story. The feel of this enchanted world is something we still even commonly share as a civilization that you and I reading this story 80 years later in a translation get that simplicity and coziness from the storytelling that these elements are all here. This Even the shared emotions, the, the fallen face, the lifting up of the audience, um, that Calvino's really pointing out to us 
um, that I think even if things really do break down, <laughs> that we will have a shared culture from which we can communicate with one another and go back and build stories even from there once again. And of course, you know, something we should point out is that we have many other stories in this story cycle. We're operating on only one installment in it so far. And so we might actually find, and I, I have no recollection of how these go, but you know, we may end up finding that there is less of that commonality than there seems to be here in this first one. Or we might even find that uh, the the commonality, the frames of reference, you know, wax and wane, depending on the nature of the, the storyteller and the, the way that the narrator uh, is able to intuit things about the storyteller based on things that have nothing to do with the cards, for example, right? Commonalities of experience that uh, that they might share and so on. And so, yeah, it's a real cool exercise. It's a real cool way to try to tell stories. Yeah. And I mean, you're kind of, uh, I think, preempting my next uh, question or, or <laughs> I don't know, homily or, or speech or something here, which isn't, you know, we, we know that the shared experiences make storytelling possible? What can we uh, demonstrate is being in common between us from which to build a narrative? But then the question of interpretation is even more thorny because, and this is where I think Calvino really is being very tricky. And so the first thing I want to ask you, Glenn, here is not, you know, this big question under under what condition is interpretation even possible, right? Because maybe that's an unanswerable question. But why Calvino switches or slides from the authority of the subjective I to the subjective we? What do you see Calvino's doing in making that move? Yeah, this is really, really interesting and really cool, right? Because the narrator is well aware that he's making interpretations. And we even get at least one place here in this story where he makes an interpretation and looks around to see if the other people in the audience are reacting to the storyteller's card choice in the same way that he is. He wants to know if they're drawing the same conclusions that he is. And he changes his mind at one point because he sees that they don't, they're not having the same reaction that he is and says, oh, I must be wrong and it must be this then instead. And I think that tells us an awful lot about the psychology of the narrator because he's very, very worried about getting the answer right and the way that he has decided he will know if he gets the answer right is if it's the answer or the conclusion that everyone else has drawn as well. Uh, and he, I, I, I just see some real anxiety there. I, yeah, I think also that Calvino's hit on something um, apart from the anxiety of making interpretations, which I think uh, is is something that we all feel from time to time in encountering the, the world in general. Um, but Calvino's also hitting on the way in which we often, and I even just did it there, we often when making interpretations will substitute our interpretation, our subjective experience that reveals something about ourselves to a broader audience or category. And of course, it would be a terribly lonely life uh, if we felt that when we were m interpreting a piece of literature, making judgments about TV shows, art, even ethical judgments, that they were solely our own. I think Calvino is pointing out the way in which we often slide into a, a, a broader authoritative 
position on judgment making when we're around maybe other people or feel we need to be connected to other people in this way. And so I think it's brilliant that Calvino does this. It's very pointed in the text. And he's showing us maybe the shyness that we all feel in speaking boldly for our own interpretations and seeing who else is going to come under our wing and how we kind of find cover in the crowd by switching that mode of authority, by speaking for the we instead of for the I. Yes, I agree with that completely. But I I do think also that one of the anxieties that the narrator has is that although we have been talking about the the nature of this world, this enchanted world of this story, it it may actually be that the narrator and perhaps everyone in, in this room, or at least all the travelers in this room, I should say, have actually only perhaps just crossed into this enchanted world, right? And so that the narrator himself may also be trying to figure out what some of the rules are, right? That he's aware of this enchanted world in the same way that we are through stories, but that, you know, we've never been to this world. But, you know, you make the make a wrong turn, you know, Google Maps, you know, gives you bad, <laughs> bad advice. You make a wrong turn and suddenly you're on a road that you've never seen before that doesn't exist on the map and you stop at a, a pub and, uh, you know, you're just, now you're, you're in a, a, an enchanted world now where the rules are different and you've got to figure this out. I, I have the sense that that might be happening to the narrator here and maybe to everyone else as well. Right. Calvino isn't shy, I think, about giving us that sense. Not by just saying the the forest is enchanted with this story about the cult of Kibbola, uh, but also with the silence being gone, there's only one seat left at the table. It feels like the gathering is complete and people have been intentionally gathered here. And Calvino's careful to draw our attention to those, those uh, facts of the case to really give us that sense that this is an enchanted world and that maybe the narrator here is feeling like he has to make sense of it, getting cover under the use of the, the we, the mode of interpretation where he can speak for the we, but then also revealing his own sense of what the world is through those interpretations. And that's really kind of that great, hermeneutic gesture and feedback is the that interpretation isn't necessarily authoritative. It can be, but it also reveals ourselves to ourselves when we make those types of judgments. And I suspect as we go through this collection, uh, either privately or on the network, we'll learn more about the narrator and how they interpret the world than we do about the world itself. I, I expect that that's going to be true. And I, you might actually know the answer to this, Brandon, because of course, as the discussant, you have read the afterword here in this edition and perhaps even done a little bit more reading than that. But I have not, and it has been t- over 20 years since I've read this collection. So I really have no memory of, of anything about it other than that I had enjoyed the heck out of it. But I, on this reading, just have a real strong sense that uh, uh, these people are all dead. <laughs> They've all died, and this is part of their journey to the afterlife, and they're reckoning with their own stories as part of what is happening here. There's a a bit of judgment happening here. I think that that is something that Calvino invites us to consider. I don't think that answer is conclusively given in the afterword of this collection, (laughs) Um, but just based on this first story, I think, you know, that's, that's an interpretive gesture that 
one, we're invited to make, but I think Calvino is explicitly inviting us to make based on the way this first story ends, right? That this is a story of people who have died uh, or a collection of stories of people who have died. And and perhaps this is a kind of uh, uh, purgatory that they found themselves in. Yeah. I mean, it is... It- it is not the only way, I guess, to make sense of the ending of the story, if that ending is going to be true. But it does seem to be the most likely, I think, answer to to how that how that is all possible. But yeah, I'm excited to to get to read more on this, whether we do it on the air or just do it on our own and you know talk about it while we're hanging out without mics in front of our face. I'll be really excited to see how this works out. Yeah, and, and you've used, I mean, just before we get out of here, I have to point out that you've used this word true again, where I think that this story is more about uh, this collection. Calvino's asking us to just be uh, bold in our judgments and not concern ourselves too much with with the, the truth as as we might uh, think of it in, in, in other realms of study or thought. So yeah, on that note, I guess that'll that'll do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Don't forget to check out Hanging Out with the Dream King. I think you're, you're really going to enjoy it if you've enjoyed particularly this, this episode. Yeah, we would love to have those of you who are not already listening to that show join me and Brent over there. We do have uh, just a, a ton of fun. Uh, Gaiman is you know, someone who works in a lot of genres. He's a real versatile writer, but uh, uh, definitely is someone who writes weird fiction and horror fiction as well as his uh, you know juvenile fantasy fiction. So hope you'll come on over and check that out and well hang out with us while we hang out with Neil Gaiman, I suppose. Next time here on this show, we will be back with the first of two episodes on the novella Niemenswasser by Robert Aikman, someone I'm very excited to finally get on the show here. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.